Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This week's episode is titled Contra Munda. In our last episode, we noted how the Emperor Constantine hoped that Christianity would be a unifying influence in the far-flung and troubled Roman Empire. But as soon as he and his co-emperor Licinius passed the Edict of Milan granting religious tolerance to all the empire subjects, the doctrinal and theological debates that had been in place for years began to surface. When the church was being hammered by persecution prior to Constantine, Christians had a more imminent threat to deal with. But now the persecution was lifted, the secondary issues moved to the foreground. As we saw at the conclusion of the last episode, the Donatists of North Africa asked the emperor to mediate their dispute with the non-Donatist adversaries. At the Council of Arles, the Donatists lost the debate over whether or not lapsed church leaders could be reinstalled. When they refused to capitulate, Constantine sent troops to Carthage, the lead church in North Africa, to enforce his will. For the first time, the power of the state was used to enforce church policy on other Christians. An interesting aside from the Council of Arles was the presence of three bishops from Britain. This gives us an idea of how far the gospel had penetrated by the beginning of the 4th century. But the Donatist controversy wasn't the only or near the largest debate that would engulf the church at that time. The biggest doctrinal challenge facing the church was how to understand the person of Jesus Christ. A pastor of a church near Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius, became the champion for a position which said that Jesus was human, but not God. As we embark on this chapter in church history, let me begin by saying that it was in these early years, as church leaders wrestled with the identity of Christ and his relation to man and God, that the theological groundwork was laid for what we hold today as orthodoxy. It took many years and several councils before the church fathers worked out the right wording that captures the essence of what we now call orthodox doctrine. Getting there was no easy trip. The journey was fraught with great trouble, distress, and at times bloodshed. It began with a debate over the nature of Christ. Was he God, man, or both? And if both, how then are we to understand him? Did he have two natures or one hybrid that merged the two. And if Jesus is God, then how do we describe God as one, yet being both Father and Son? Oh, and don't forget the Holy Spirit. How are we going to describe all of this without saying something about God that's untrue? I warn you that as we carry all of this into the 5th and 6th centuries, especially the discussions over how to understand the nature of Christ, we're going to see some church leaders acting in a decidedly non-Christian manner. One of the church councils called to settle this matter ended up in a bloody riot. So hang on, because we have some fun stuff ahead. For now, realize that what we're looking at in this era of our review is a big deal and will frame the course of church life over the next nearly 300 years. How do I explain the debate as it emerged in the challenge that Arius presented? Well, because of their pagan background, many people didn't believe that God experienced emotions as humans experienced them. And yet it's clear from the Gospels that Jesus did experience such emotions. Therefore, logic seemed to dictate that Jesus could not have been divine, because if he was, then God experienced human emotions. Arius' solution was that Jesus was God's first and greatest creation. Denying that Jesus was eternal, he said, once the Son did not exist. 
Arius wanted to get his ideas into the public mind quickly, and so he set his doctrine to catchy little tunes, and soon many were singing his songs. Arius's position was popular among the common people who found the Christian doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity difficult. How could there be one God eternally manifest as three persons? Arius's description of Jesus as a kind of divine hero beneath the one God fit more easily into their pagan background, and so they adopted his theology. While Arius's teaching spread rapidly among his pagan neighbors, those with a keener awareness of the Bible opposed his aberrant views. They composed their own chorus that today is known as the Gloria Patri. It goes, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, and so Arius's spiritual overseer, led the opposition to Arius and called together a group of church leaders in 320. They reviewed Arius's theology and declared it heretical. When Arius refused to back down, they excommunicated him. Arius then went to the empire's eastern capital at Nicomedia and asked for the support of his friend, the bishop of the church there, a guy named Eusebius. Now, this is not the church historian Eusebius who lived at the same time. And so now, the two most influential churches of the east were set in opposition to each other. Nicomedia, the political headquarters, and Alexandria, the intellectual center. Because Arius had Eusebius's backing, he felt emboldened to return to Alexandria. And when he did, there was rioting in the streets. But then, if you know anything about ancient Alexandria, rioting was a favored pastime. They rioted like we go to a ball game. It was public sport. As the Arian controversy spread, Emperor Constantine realized that if he didn't take action, instead of the church providing much-needed unity for the empire, it would become one of the major sources of turmoil and unrest. So, in 325, he called church leaders far and wide to attend a special council at the city of Nicaea in modern Turkey, at his expense. Some 300 bishops managed to make it, enough to make the Council of Nicaea a remarkable presentation of the whole church. Many of those who attended bore the scars and marks of the Diocletian persecution. When they met, they found a throne set for the emperor in the midst of the hall. He sat arrayed in richly jeweled robes befitting more an eastern monarch than an emperor of Rome. Constantine assumed that the Arian controversy was merely a semantic debate, a petty brouhaha over words, and that a meeting of the minds of Christian leaders was all that was needed to settle the dispute. Yeah, Let's just get everybody together in one place and talk it out man-to-man, face-to-face. Surely they'll reach a compromise, right? And so he commenced the council with a little pep talk about the importance of their task and then turned it over to them. (laughs) The depth of his naivete was quickly revealed. The account of the finding of the council reveals that while the doctrinal issue raised by Arius was quickly resolved, it was how Arius had been handled by Bishop Alexander that became the main point of debate. Arianism was declared heretical. The council affirmed both the deity and humanity of Jesus as the Son of God. Constantine urged his friend, Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous historian, to put forward his creed, his statement of faith, as something that the entire council could endorse as their united statement. But the council didn't find Eusebius sufficiently clear on his belief in the deity of Jesus and went instead with a creed that was offered by the bishop of the Spanish city of Cordova, a man named Hosius, another favorite of the emperor's. Still, the council dithered, 
and Constantine, with an empire run, grew impatient, so he pressed the bishops to endorse what today we know as the Nicene Creed, the accepted standard of both the Roman and Eastern churches. I quote the Nicene Creed in full. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights. And then come the lines that the council wrote to specifically deal with the Arian heir, which says, True God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Uh, Remember that phrase, it's going to be important later. By whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets." And we believe in only one universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Only two of the 300 bishops present refused to sign the creed. Along with Arius, they were exiled. Constantine assumed that the Aaron controversy had now been dealt with, and so the church would settle down and help him unite the realm. To mark the dawn of a new and glorious day of church and state cooperation, Constantine held a huge banquet before the bishops headed home. What a sight! These men, bearing the scars of the previous emperor's persecution, now the emperor's celebrated guests, eating at his sumptuous table, reclining at his own couch, guarded by his bodyguard. One man, missing an eye put out by Diocletian, was given special honor. Constantine even kissed the eyeless cheek. But in the years that followed, some of those bishops were banished from their posts when they took umbrage at this or that imperial decision. A hierarchy grew up around Constantine. These were self-appointed advisors to the emperor on the state of the church. If they didn't like a certain fellow, they accused him of some offense, and the newly anointed enemy was exiled, with his replacement being someone more amenable to the accuser. And just as often as a bishop ran afoul of imperial favor and was banished, Just that quick, he could be called back when Constantine replaced one set of advisors with another. The role of church leaders became a kind of musical chairs. In today, out tomorrow, back the day after, but keep your bags packed at all times. An example of this is the career of Athanasius. Athanasius was a young advisor to Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, who led the opposition to Arius. Athanasius was a short and dark-skinned deacon, that his enemies referred to as the Black Dwarf. As a young man, he spent hours with his heroes, the monks in the wilderness outside Alexandria. The word monk means alone, and they took their name from the isolation that they pursued in the deserts of North Africa. Athanasius took it on himself to make sure that these monks had food and supplies as they devoted themselves to God by literally fleeing the world. Athanasius had a keen mind and lived a highly disciplined life. Even at a young age, his brilliance was respected. And when Alexander made the trip to Nicaea for the famous council, he took Athanasius with him. Not long after returning from Nicaea, 
Alexander fell ill and asked Athanasius to replace him. But Athanasius wanted to serve, not lead, and so he fled to his desert friends. They convinced him of his calling to lead the church, and he returned to Alexandria as bishop. He was 33. Constantine was loath to undo the findings of the Council of Nicaea, but he also knew that the Arian position was still quite popular among many of the common folk. He thought it best that Arius be allowed to return to Alexandria as a member of the church, thinking that now that Alexander, the man who'd led the opposition, was out of the way, Athanasius would knuckle under to imperial authority and consent to Arius's return. <laughs> Constantine couldn't have been more wrong. Athanasius locked horns with the emperor and refused to budge, even when Constantine threatened to banish him. They battled for five years when finally the emperor had had enough and found Athanasius guilty of treason. In the 40 years that Athanasius was bishop, he was banished and recalled five times as the wind of fortune and imperial favor shifted in the palace. At one point, he was so thoroughly out of political goodwill that every one of his supporters deserted him. It was during this period that he wrote and spoke of his devotion and unwavering loyalty to Jesus as king above all earthly kings, saying that nothing could weaken his resolve to love and serve God, even if it meant Athanasius contra Munda, Athanasius against the world. Remember just a moment ago when reading the Nicene Creed, I mentioned to note the phrase that Jesus was of one substance with the Father. Not long after the Nicene Council, a group of church leaders decided to soften the Nicene position and bring it a little more toward the Arian view. They said that Jesus wasn't the same substance as the Father, but was of a similar substance. In Greek, it's the difference of one letter between homoousius, meaning same substance, and the new terminology that they advocated, homoousius, a similar substance. As we'd expect, Athanasius led the classic Nicene interpretation of homoousius against the quasi-Arians and their statement of homoousius. Well, this may seem an insignificant difference to many of us, it proved to be of monumental importance. If the door was opened in even a small way to begin thinking of Jesus as somehow different in essence from the Father, it wouldn't be long before his deity would be jettisoned entirely. Then we wouldn't be following the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus of history. Athanasius's lonely and steadfast determination to hold fast to what the Bible said about God rather than go along with the politically-minded doctrine massagers of his day, is one of the most important and heroic moments, not just in church history, but in all history. This was one of those moments when it seems truth hung by a thread, a thread only as thick as the letter I. We end this episode with this. One of Constantine's most important contributions to history was the relocation of his capital to Byzantium from the decayed husk of the once great but now worn out and tired city of Rome. Byzantium was located at the geographical crossroads for the ancient world, and it's a wonder that no one had recognized its strategic brilliance before this. It sits on a narrow neck of the Bosporus, linking east and west, and controls the flow of maritime trade between the Black and Mediterranean seas. Located not far from Diocletian's eastern capital at Nicomedia, it meant an easy relocation of the capital. Constantine decided to turn the hundreds-year-old village into a bright, shining new center of civilization 
and made a good start on the project before his death in 337. Because it was the eastern capital, it also became a major center and headquarters of the church, which would eventually vie with Rome for bragging rights over which church ruled the Christian world. At Constantine's death, it was as if a message was sent to the frontiers that it was time for Rome's enemies to push her borders backwards. In Central Asia, the Huns pressed westward on the Goths, who in turn pressed in on Rome's eastern frontier. Another group known as the Visigoths eventually made it all the way to Rome in 410, where they sacked the city. Their leader, Alaric, had been influenced by Arianism. Over the next years, other Easterners made their way across Europe, bringing more rune. Each successive wave was like another slap to the face of the once great Rome, which by that time was little more than a punch-drunk and washed-up has-been. The Franks, Alans, Vandals, and Ostrogoths all took a turn knocking the Romans about. The Vandals, who began their campaign of terror and pillage in the steppes of Asia, crossed the Rhine, plowed a deep furrow south into Spain, took ship to cross the Straits of Gibraltar and landed in North Africa, where they heard that fabulous wealth awaited. Furious that the riches they dreamed of weren't there, they went on a rampage of destruction that's bequeathed their name Vandal to later generations as meaning someone out to wreck wanton and pointless ruination. One of the cities that they laid siege to in North Africa was Hippo, where a bishop named Augustine served as pastor. Augustine became one of the most important theologians in all of church history. He died during the siege of the Vandals. When they finally conquered and destroyed the city, the Vandals so respected Augustine that they took pains to preserve his church and the extensive library that he'd accumulated. Augustine of Hippo is a towering influence in church history and one that we'll return to in a future episode. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.